why our obsession with identity won't make Hollywood more inclusive. The Stanford Guide to Acceptable Words. Does diversity training work? We don't know, and here's why. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast's episode description. Now a letter from Brian Bartning. Dear friends of FAIR, when I was a child growing up in Newton, Massachusetts, I was passionate about civil rights. I wanted to do my small part to help heal the world and move us ever closer to the promise outlined in the Declaration of Independence, that every person was created equal and that we are all entitled to unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Martin Luther King Jr. was a hero to me and still is. I remember the day several years ago that I first shared his I Have a Dream speech with my two young children. He spoke the truth about our shared humanity, equal protection under the law, access to equal opportunity for all, and why it was important to treat our fellow Americans with dignity and respect. I thought, growing up, that everybody shared these values. As a young teenager in 1988, I did not understand why our governor at the time was pilloried as a card-carrying member of the ACLU which I viewed as an organization committed to standing up for the individual civil liberties that are promised to all Americans under the Constitution. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, equal protection under the law. I saw the ACLU as a vigilant guardian, fighting to protect our hard-won individual rights and freedoms. Perhaps that was true at the time, but as I discovered a few years ago, and many recognized much earlier— the ACLU is no longer the vigilant and nonpartisan civil liberties organization that we desperately need. Rather, it is a highly partisan fundraising machine that contributes to the ever-increasing polarization in our culture while bringing in almost $400 million per year through the ACLU and the ACLU Foundation, plus millions more through its state-level chapters. And where does the ACLU spend all of the money that it raises from individuals and corporations? In 2021, Anthony Romero, CEO of the ACLU, was paid over $1 million. This is an astounding amount for a nonprofit organization to spend on one person and, together with the significant salaries of other key employees, shows the degree to which, perhaps, money and a careerist mindset motivates and drives the people at the top of the ACLU. As founder and CEO of FAIR, I have never taken and will never take any salary or compensation. In fact, FAIR's total payroll for its entire team of paid staff members combined is substantially less than the $1 million that the ACLU spends on its CEO alone. For almost two years, I have donated and will continue to donate my time, energy, and money to support FAIR. The same is true of the other volunteers and donors involved in building FAIR since its launch last March, including Letitia Kim, head of the FAIR Legal Network, our chapter leaders, board of advisors, and hundreds of other courageous individuals. Why do so many of us choose to be part of this? While we may not agree on every issue, we are all passionate about FAIR's nonpartisan mission and to advancing the values, principles, and individual freedoms that are the foundation of a healthy, functioning, pluralistic society. 
I was compelled to found FAIR after seeing how the same illiberal and intolerant ideology that had infected my children's schools had caused the ACLU and other civil rights organizations to stray from their missions. I saw the urgent need for a new, truly nonpartisan organization committed to advancing individual civil rights and liberties for all Americans. And that is exactly what we are building with your support and involvement at FAIR. Together, we are building an organization based on our shared values of fairness, understanding, and humanity. I invite you to join us as a member of FAIR with a donation of $25 or more and help bolster the forces of love and honest inclusion over the forces of hate and alienation. With gratitude, Byron Bartning. This week on our Substack, Justo Antonio Triana wrote about how obsession with identity in Hollywood corrupts the artistic will to explore our common humanity and punishes our drive to genuinely understand those who are different from us. Triana writes, Knowing the history of the United States and the struggles of minority groups to achieve equal status, one would think that this reasoning, that a person's national origin, skin color, and sexual orientation are the most relevant aspects of their being, would not be popular today. After all, it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. His goal was not to exclude white people, but to include black people. The implication, which much of our extreme politics makes, that a human being can only properly understand and interpret another when their physical characteristics correspond, is to judge them by the color of their skin, and to disregard the content of their character, in this case, their ability to perform a role. This goes against King's philosophy and takes us further away from his goal of achieving moral and social equality and reconciliation. For the free press, Fair Advisor Coleman Hughes wrote about the long-running national debate about colorblindness. He writes, Colorblind is an expression like warm-hearted. It uses a physical metaphor to encapsulate an abstract idea. To describe a person as warm-hearted is not to say something about the temperature of that person's heart, but about the kindness of his or her spirit. Similarly, to advocate for colorblindness is not to pretend you don't notice color. It is to endorse a principle that we should strive to treat people without regard to race in our public policy and our private lives. Colorblindness is the best principle with which to govern a multiracial democracy. It is the best way to lower the temperature of racial conflict in the long run. It is the best way to fight the kind of racism that really matters. And it is the best way to orient your own attitude toward this nefarious concept we call race. We abandon colorblindness at our own peril. For the New York Times, Fair Advisor John McWhorter wrote about a recent mistake made by the Chancellor of Purdue University Northwest, Thomas L. Keon, the subsequent calls for his head, and why we should approach blunders such as these with a more nuanced perspective. McWhorter states, is it not true that there is still a difference between racism that, however obnoxious, is nonetheless careless or accidental as opposed to intended to send a racist message? We've seen all too much of the latter in the past few years. Is it true that we must treat racism as a kind of cyanide, where even a trace amount in a glass of water is lethal? The idea that one tacky joke constitutes the measure of a whole human being has begun to seem almost ordinary of late. However, it is a quite extraordinary idea, and even rather medieval. Too often, it is wielded in a fashion that is extremist, unreflexive, and recreationally hostile. 
Some may think that when the joke is a racist one, all bets are off, and that indeed we have seen a person's essence, his entirety, a Jehomo, as it were. But this implies that battling the power of whiteness must center all our endeavors, including determining the nature of morality in general. This is the tacit commitment of much of high wokeness today, and it too is less the platonic good than a modern peculiarity. This week, Desert News hosted a Q&A with Brian Bartning on how schools should teach ethnic studies and why he was inspired to found FAIR. Brian says, I'm a firm believer in seeing other people as part of one human race, and that's what I've always taught my children. I have a different skin color than my children because I inherited my father's skin color and my kids inherited their mother's skin color. And so, by not just suggesting this is one way to see the world, but to say it is essential that families really embrace this worldview of seeing people through the lens of skin color was troubling for me. And I think that started me on a search for understanding. Let's see if there's something else out there that would actually serve a useful purpose and help children to understand that race is not real and that we are all connected. I realized pretty quickly if I wanted to do something about this, I needed to seriously consider starting an organization. And that is the Genesis Affair. For the Wall Street Journal, the editorial board wrote about the Stanford University administrators publishing an index of forbidden words to be removed from the school's websites and computer code and provided inclusive replacements to help re-educate those deemed less enlightened and progressive. They write, Paradists have had it rough these days, since so much of modern life and culture resembles the Babylon Bee. Call yourself an American? Please don't. Better to say U.S. citizen, per the bias hunters, lest you slight the rest of America's. Immigrant is also out, with person who has immigrated as the approved alternative. It's the iron law of academic writing. Why use one word when four will do? For the Washington Post, Betsy Levy-Pollock wrote about the lack of research into diversity training and why the need for more data on the subject is so important as diversity training programs continue to increase across the country. She states, As a behavioral scientist who studies prejudice and behavior change, I can tell you that the situation really is that bad. Last year, my colleagues and I published a comprehensive review of the prejudice reduction literature. We included only program evaluations that used random assignment and control groups, as you would use to check the effectiveness and safety of a drug. Out of hundreds of studies evaluating prejudice reduction programming from the past decade, only two large studies tracked the effects of diversity training. Most diversity training evaluations look like customer satisfaction surveys. How much did you appreciate this? Or elementary school worksheets. Tell me what you learned today about stereotyping. Since our review, despite the surge in diversity programming, there have only been a handful of additional studies. In some, we don't have good evidence for what works. We're treating a pandemic of discrimination and racial and religious resentment with untested drugs. We want the FAIR Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Please send your piece to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.